If you're a parent, you've likely heard someone talk about natural consequences. This is the idea of letting children learn from their own experiences, what naturally occurs as a result of their actions. So, for example, if you forget to wear your coat to school, your child learns that they will be cold. If they forget their lunch, they'll be hungry. And if they put off writing that term paper until the night before it's due, they will both have a rotten night and a bad grade. The idea is that too many parents rescue, even protect their children from consequences of their actions. So as a result, it limits how much children can actually learn from their experiences. So experts say, don't jump in the car and take the coat or the lunch to school. Let them naturally experience whatever it is that will happen. Now, just to close the loop here, it's necessary not to blame or shame your children in times like this. Parents can also show empathy and understanding even if they're allowing them to experience a natural consequence. So you can say to your child, I bet it was hard to go hungry or to get that bad grade. Now, it can be difficult for those of us who are parents and our hearts are warm for our, our kids to be supportive without rescuing or overprotecting, but it can also be one of the most helpful things that parents can do is to help them learn from life's lessons. Now, let me just say, if you're a parent, you will still intervene when they're in danger, so you won't you know, let them experience all of the natural consequences. But I've learned that it cuts down on the whining, pouting, and complaining when uh, children know that they have to take care of their own problems. Now, end of parenting lecture. Why in the world would I mention this when we're talking about Jeremiah? Today's story from Jeremiah is a God-sized version of natural consequences. So let me say up front that the topic we're talking about today is one that troubles many, and frankly, it should trouble all of us to some degree, and that is the idea of the judgment of God. The idea is that when someone sins, when they violate one of God's stated commands, he must and will punish the person for what they've done. Sometimes that punishment is simply to experience the natural consequences of what they've done. So on Friday, I didn't use the right tool, and I cut my thumb. Not badly, and basically the most important consequence is I can't use the, finger, uh, the thumb uh, fingerprint uh, uh, entry to my iPhone. Um, but other times, punishment is imposed from the outside, from an authority figure, maybe a parent or a boss or a police officer. So if you're driving fast, the natural consequence of driving too fast on a curvy, windy road in a rainy day is that you will slide off the road into a ditch. The, the uh, consequence of punishment is getting a speeding ticket. So either way, there's some kind of consequence. Now, what complicates things is that we often associate both natural consequences and punishment with the idea that whoever is designated with enforcement somehow enjoys enforcing and exercising their authority. And so there are people in all areas of life who love playing gotcha. And that's how many people think about God. So whenever the topic of God and judgment comes up, many people think of an angry, vengeful God who delights in playing some cosmic version of this gotcha, gotcha game. One of the reasons why we get the idea that there is because there are stories in the Bible where God acts quickly and decisively to punish, and sometimes very severely, people who do things that we see as fairly benign. Well, as an example, let me just give you one from Joshua chapter 7. There's a guy named Achan. They're involved in a battle. Um, Achan decides to take some of the plunder and rather than give it over to the community, keeps it for himself, buries it in a hole in his tent, and he's discovered. And the punishment is death by stoning. 
Now, our cultural dis- dif- distance makes it difficult for us to get into the minds of people who lived 3,000 years ago, and it's also difficult for us to understand why it was that God, what God was trying to teach them from this incident. So I can't answer all of the questions you might have about this relationship between God and judgment, but I do believe that today's story can go a long way toward helping us understand a context for why God acts as he does. Now, let me... To do that, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Start with Genesis, um, with creation. God brought this world into existence, making something out of nothing, and we're told human beings are the pinnacle of that creation. We're told that we alone are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, very early in the story, it takes a downward turn with the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And there are natural consequences. The idyllic life that they lived in the Garden ends, And life becomes much more challenging. Thorns and thistles are just the beginning of their difficulties. And yet, God doesn't give up on his project. In fact, he doubles down. The most important early hint that God has a grand plan for all of this um, is when he approaches a nomad named Abraham and tells him to leave his home country, travel hundreds of miles away to a land that he promised to give one day all of his descendants. Now, at this time, Abraham is responsible for a clan of people, maybe around 100, um, but God is promising to do something much greater. So in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, it says this, God says to him, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. And we can include ourselves in the number of those who've been blessed by that, by what Abraham received. So from this small clan of people, God does exactly what he told Abraham he would do. And he builds a great nation. Um, Now, the problem is, by the time this happens, they are living in Egypt in a sort of slavery. Despite their numbers, they're completely under the thumb of the Pharaoh of Egypt. So they cry out to God, he hears them, and sends a man named Moses, who leads them on a remarkable journey from slavery to freedom and to the land that God has promised that one day will be theirs. Through Moses, God gave the people a moral code, a set of religious instructions that tell them how they're to live and how they can remain close to God. It was something the entire nation committed together to follow and let shape their lives. And they got off to a good start although not for very long, because pretty soon they proved less than faithful in keeping what God called the law. Early on, there was an incident with a golden calf, an alternative God to the one true God that they'd been told about in the Ten Commandments. From that point on, they cycled through periods of obedience and periods of rebellion. And toward the end of his life, Moses challenged the people to be faithful to God. Essentially, he said, do this and God will bless you, and if you don't, there will be consequences. Consequences not just for the individual, but for the nation as well. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. And then in chapter 30, he said something that's very interesting. And I'm summarizing here. He said, if you ever rebel, do not hesitate to return to me. Recommit your lives to me with all your heart and mind and soul. And I will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and you will live. But if you don't, expect that you will experience punishment. Now, unfortunately, this cycle that you can see on the screen, this pattern of obedience, rebellion, consequences, repentance, obedience all over again, uh, continued. There were cycles that they would just go through, and they kept repeating this destructive pattern. Once Israel began to be led by kings, this pattern continued. Some kings did well, others not so well. Saul was the first of Israel's kings, and he began pretty well. 
and still, pretty quickly, he also began to make some mistakes. And eventually, God removed him and replaced him with one of Israel's best kings, a man named David. We've looked at him before a couple of summers ago. We're going to continue his story this coming summer. Although David has his own problems, particularly with women. Years after David departed the scene, the nation ended up splitting into two. To the north was Israel, which remained a nation until about 720 B.C., um, and to the south was Judah, which had a longer history. We're t- looking today at a time that takes place about 130 years after the northern nation has disappeared. They've been conquered, and the people are still there, but they aren't part of the nation of Israel. The northern nation had very poor leadership. Out of about 20 kings, there's only one you could call good, and he was, even he was a mixed bag, the king Jehu. The southern nation of Judah had about 25 kings, just over that, the vast majority of which were bad, although there were a few good kings and others you can call maybe mixed. The promise that God had given Moses, that if the nation obeyed and remained faithful to God, he would bless them, but if they did not, they would be cursed, was lived out. And by the way, when he said cursed, he talked about things like their crops would fail, their livestock would die, they'd face disease and defeat by their enemies, and eventually finding themselves displaced and a long way from home. He said, that's what's going to happen. It's harsh, isn't it? And yet, despite persistent patterns of rebellion, these consequences and rebellion, repentance again and recommitment, rebellion all over again, God never quite seems to put the hammer down on them completely. Which brings us to our friend Jeremiah. For the last couple of months, we've been looking at this fascinating man. He just happens to live at one of the lowest ebbs in Israel's history. And the message God asks him to deliver to the people for 40 years is repent or there will be consequences. A few weeks ago, we looked at a time when God asked Jeremiah to go to a potter's shop. And while he watched, the potter was making something out of clay. And and it didn't turn out the way that he expected. So he took the clay, smashed it, and started over again. And God used that as an object lesson for Jeremiah. He said, oh, that I could do the same with my people. And I'm summarizing here. He says, if only they'd repent and turn from their evil ways, I will build them up again. But if they refuse to turn from their evil ways and obey, I'm not going to bless them as I said I would. He tells Jeremiah to warn the people. Tell them I'm planning disaster, not good, unless they turn from their evil ways and do what's right. And what's shocking is the way the people respond to this message. They say, God, don't waste your breath. We're going to live the way we want to live, so bug off. And their reaction breaks God's heart, not so much their disobedience, but their stubborn hearts. The turn and repent message that Jeremiah brings, he brings repeatedly, and each time he does, he tells them that if they do, if they do repent, God will set aside the punishment that he has planned for them. But he also tells them that time is short and the offer won't remain forever. Eventually, Jeremiah's message changes, and God starts to talk about consequences. About 17 years before the story that we're going to look at today, in Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah warns them yet again. This is in Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning with verse 3, where he says, For 23 years I've spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. The Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, but you have not listened or paid attention. They said, Turn now, each one of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord gave you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve or worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made, then I will not harm you. So he's making one final offer. 
Then he says this, but you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. You've aroused my anger with what your hands have made and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. Even with that direct message that disaster's coming and it's coming from the north, you still have the offer to repent, they ignore him. And eventually, the Babylonians arrived. Now, I've told you before that the book of Jeremiah is not organized chronologically. So we've just talked about something that happened 17 years ago from the time uh, that we're looking at. In chapter 25, we go back to chapter 21, and it's now fast-forwarded to uh, uh, the year 588 or so. It says, The people came begging Jeremiah, Inquire of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us, as in times past, so that he will withdraw from us. But Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, he was the king then, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the walls besieging you. And I will gather them inside this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. I will strike down those who live in this city, both man and beast, and they will die of a terrible plague. After that, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and all the people in this city who survived the plague, sword, and famine, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who want to kill them. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. Then verse 9, whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging, you will live. They will escape with their lives. So what happens essentially is they come to Jeremiah asking him to pray for a miracle. You know, pray that we'll be delivered. He tells them it's too late. And then he suggests that in the long run it would be better for them to go ahead and surrender to the Babylonians and live than to face certain destruction. So resist and die, surrender and live. It's that simple. So what do they do? Well, they certainly don't listen. In fact, in chapter 37, we find out that what they tried was a diplomatic Hail Mary. They entered into an alliance with the Egyptians, who were the enemies of the Babylonians, and the Egyptians promised to protect them from the Babylonians. And it worked for a few weeks. What happened is the Egyptians made their way north toward Israel, the Babylonians see that they're coming, so what they do is they cease the siege, they leave the city, they go down and meet the Egyptians, and it didn't work out very well for the Egyptians or for the, uh, for the nation of Judah. The Babylonians make short work of the Egyptians, they're soon back outside the city, and the whole strategy turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. And so, on July 19th, 586 B.C., after a two-and-a-half-year siege, the city fell. And here's how the story's told in the last book, uh, chapter of the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 52. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. And it was, the, and it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city, built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. This is that two and a half year period. It says, by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between two walls near the king's gate, although it was surrounded, although the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward Arabath, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Reblah, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him in bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he, they put him in prison till the day of his death. Now, about a month later, on August 15th, 586 B.C., we learned what happened to the temple. It tells us in uh, verses 12 to 16 this, that... Uh, Nebuzaradan, I'm sorry, I actually practiced how to say it and I can't say it now, so we'll just call him Neb. Um, the commander of the imperial guard who served the king of Babylon said to, uh, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem. Neb, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But Neb left behind the rest of the poorest of the people in the, of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. So this is really the culmination of 40 years of Jeremiah's ministry, and he really is a failure. He's been predicting this day would come, Repeatedly, he appealed to them to repent and change their ways, but they'd refused, and now disasters come. And the defeat was a crushing bro, blow to the pride and sense of national identity of these people. They'd been utterly humiliated. By the time it was over, the city lay in ruins, their beloved temple burned to the ground, and many of the people had been carried off to Babylon. Only the poorest of the poor were left behind, and the future looked grim. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that as bad as it was, God had promised to bring them back to the land in 70 years. So it's not all bad news. There is something that's, that's promised by God. But even now, he's allowing them to experience the natural consequences of their disobedience, and yet he's still committed to his people, which is, by the way, the way he is with each one of us as well. Now, as we have the last few weeks, what we've done is at the end, we've tried to summarize with how we can learn to live this out. What can we learn? And the first lesson that I believe we can learn from this is about divine justice. Several times a year, I have conversations with people who are troubled by the idea of God as judge. And many today, and probably some of you, find it offensive, the very idea of a judging God offensive. Now, just so you know, I do not take delight in trying to defend God's judgment. However, I think it's important to consider what it would be like if God did not judge wrongdoing. Another way to say this is, is that if we're offended by the idea of a judging God, why aren't we also offended by the idea of a forgiving God? So let me explain. If you've ever been hurt by someone, maybe through infidelity or divorce, or you've been defrauded or slandered, or you've been hurt physically or psychologically, 
your natural reaction, and I believe it's a just reaction, is to ask for justice. None of us want Hitler or Bernie Madoff or Harvey Weinstein to get off scot-free. And we certainly don't want those who've hurt us to go unpunished. Something inside of us cries out for justice. The same impulse makes it hard for us to accept the idea that God offers forgiveness to people who've hurt us and others. We love the idea that God offers us forgiveness, but when we've been hurt by a friend or a coworker, an ex-husband, a mother, a father-in-law, it's hard to accept the idea that God would forgive them. But God does offer to forgive just as he promises to judge. His objective is to see that things are made right in the end. Now, we also need to understand that sin has consequences, and sometimes the consequences are punishment, just like a speeding ticket. And other times, the punishment is to experience the natural consequences of our actions. About once a year, I, I mentioned one of my favorite quotes from Dante's Divine Comedy. It's a penetrating quote where he offers this observation. He says, the punishment for sin is the sin itself without illusion. The punishment for sin is the sin itself without illusion. And what he's talking about is that often we decide to do something that we know God isn't pleased with because we believe it will bring us happiness or satisfaction. But then we engage in that behavior and we find out that the opposite is true. Rather than bringing us happiness or satisfaction, we end up with maybe a disaster on our hands. Sin is not something that we should take lightly, and the consequences can be severe. As Jeremiah repeatedly warns his fellow citizens, the time for repentance won't be available forever. Which brings us to the second lesson, and that is God's divine patience. You see, God is remarkably patient with us. While we don't like the message of judgment found throughout the Bible and throughout this book of Jeremiah, the clear message is how many chances God gives them to repent. It's so many, it's hard to count. In some ways, the real question in Jeremiah is not why judgment was about to come now, but why it hadn't happened earlier. The impression we get by looking at the entire sweep of Israel's history, which is why we did that whole discussion at the beginning, is not that God is a stern disciplinarian with anger issues. If anything, he is almost an irresponsibly indulgent God who is hesitant to crack the whip when people get out of line. By the time Judah is sent into exile in Babylon, no one would say, my, what a harsh God you are. Instead, you want to say, it's about time, what took you so long? The offense here is not that God's angry with the innocent, but that he's way too merciful and unreasonably patient with the stubborn and the rebellious. You see, even as he warns, he pleads with his people to return to him. And we see that their sin causes him more pain than it does anger. Sadness is not... He doesn't glow. Another one of Israel's prophets, Ezekiel, once said, uh, wrote, and this is a quote from God. He said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And God does this because of his love. This influenced greatly the New Testament authors, including Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, who many years after Jesus ascended into heaven wrote this. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We have four values here at City Church. Invite, become, belong, or belong, become, and serve. And Kara talked about serve in the announcement time today. And I want to mention the first of those four values, the value of invite. You see, Jesus offers each one of us an invitation, and it's an invitation each of us must personally receive. 
And it begins with repentance, acknowledging sin and brokenness in our lives. But the news is not all bad. There's some good news, and that is because in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find peace, we find meaning and purpose, we find guidance and strength and hope for eternity that we all need. Because it's on the cross that Jesus died the death that we deserved and rose again that we might have life. And the question for us is, will you receive the invitation that Jesus offers each one of us? Which brings us to the final lesson for today, and that is divine hope. Even when God does judge, it is never the last word. In fact, the way God sees it, punishment can be a way to get our attention. It can open our hearts so we experience the grace and healing of a merciful and forgiving God. There's an example of this at the very end of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 52. last three verses um, talk about um, an incident that we would not know about if it weren't given us here. The next to the last king of the nation was someone named Jehoiakim. He was wicked, he was ineffective, and he lasted just three months. Years before the events we've talked about today, he was taken prisoner by uh, the Babylonians. He was carried off there to their capital city, and he disappears from the story here until the very end. And so in verses 31 to 34, we learn about what happened to him. And by the way, this event happens maybe 25 years after the city's destroyed. And it says, In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the year of Awal Mardok, the king of Babylon, became king of Babylon. He released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. It's a little glimmer of hope, and it recalls Jeremiah's promise in Jeremiah chapter 30, 30 to 33, when he tells them that even though disaster's coming, that God has not abandoned his people. So while this book contains warnings of judgment, it ends with a note of hope for the future. And that's what this book of Jeremiah is all about. Let's pray. Father, it's sobering to think that uh, we are often the recipients of natural consequences. It's not something you've done to us, but something we've done to ourselves. And sometimes we are punished, punished justly for things that we have done. But we are so grateful, grateful that in Jesus Christ, you offer us a clean start, fresh start, a, a new day. We thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection that remind us that while we are broken, we are more loved than we ever imagined. Father, as we learn from this nation of Israel who made many mistakes, may we learn in the right ways. May we avoid the mistakes that they've made. And may we put our hope and trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.